Well, we're going to dive right into today. Um, I know people got a lot going on. We got people traveling, but we've started this series a few weeks ago called this alternate reality. And as we begin to examine this, we're looking at is where do we as born again believers live in the reality of Christianity versus the reality of this world. There are two realities, whether we like it or not. There's this thing, the virtual reality. You guys have done any of that kind of stuff like an, an Oculus Rift? It is trippy, like trippy. I have one. And I brought a guy in, and he's a, he's a pilot, and uh, he tried the, uh, the flying thing, and he was standing there with it, and he just kept kind of doing this, and he finally was like, Chris, you've got to give me a chair. I'm going to fall over. It's, it's so trippy. And so when we look at the definition of the word reality, it comes down to this. The world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. And it's the state of quality of having existence or substance. When we talk about this, it's where do we fall in the spectrum as believers? In other words, we live by faith and not by sight, right? So what does that mean? It means that we are living by the reality of the promises of God, not necessarily what we're seeing and experiencing in that moment. Now, the question comes down to, should we be living and experiencing and seeing the promises of God? The answer is yes. But there may be a reason of to why we are not. And if that is true, we need to examine that to, to get an understanding thereof. And so as we looked at this, we've got to understand something. What we have gone through in Scripture is we looked at from the beginning, God started everything, creating a family. In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, you see the creation narrative. He started off with creating all the stuff, then he created man. Man being the pinnacle of his creation. As we saw, that he had already created the, what we'll call the angelic beings. What they look like, we don't know, don't believe what you see in movies. And so with that, we know that they were there. God created a family. And then what did he do? He planted a garden eastward in Eden. He put Adam in it. So that means the garden is not the world. The garden was a separate thing. He puts Adam in it. And then he gives him what? Dominion over. He says, I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. Those are two different things. Because you can multiply but not be fruitful. Fruitful means to produce something of worth. Sometimes your multiplication is not of worth, okay? That's a joke, y'all. Don't look at me like that. So when you look at this, it's like, hey, be fruitful, multiply. And then what does he do? He brought every animal and said, Adam, name it, okay? Every animal, every creature was named by Adam. That implies a God-given authority. Did, did Adam sit there and say, no, I want to do it. Let me do it. Please let me do it. No, God said, Adam, this is your, your, you, whatever you call it. This is what it is. We see the creation of family. We see the fall of Adam. We just see the separation now between man and God. The relationship that Adam had with God is not one that you and I enjoy in a sense. Then we have a separation of nations that took place between Israel with the call of Abraham and the table of nations that happens in Genesis chapter 10 where he separates the nation. He takes one for himself, the nation of ultimately being Israel. And you saw that Israel was an example of God's goodness into the world. Everywhere they get, went, they heard about Israel because of what God had done for them. He brought them through the Red Sea. It struck fear into their hearts because they knew that that God, that was the real one. They may not have worshipped him, but that was the real deal. And God told them, it's like, listen, if you will do what I say and keep my commandments, I will bless you. And if you don't, I will curse you. And so it went both sides of the coin. But from the beginning, the plan was there was two separate nations. Israel and everybody else. And then we get to the new covenant. And the new covenant that Jesus came, ratifies with his blood at the cross, not going into all of that, separated 
believer from non-believer. There's always been two groups since the fall of man, two groups of people. Followers of God, not followers of God. So therefore, as a result of because what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said, the believers have a different spectrum on the world. A perspective that does not necessarily go with the mainstream narrative that's happening. It happened during Jesus' time. It's happening during our time. We take a moral stance on certain things. Why do we do that? Because Jesus did that. He is our example, but he's not just our example in the moral areas of where we should help people in need and take care of those, uh, those people that maybe can't take care of themselves. We are not just moral beings that are now good in the eyes of the world. We are supernatural beings sent to reign on this earth. Now, I know that sounds weird, but the world and reality that we live in does not match what scripture has said. And you will begin, as we begin to unpack this, you will see this more so and more so. What I'm telling you is what we have experienced as the church is not what was intended by God. And you can prove that through Scripture. Because when you read the book of Acts and the events that took place, we should be seeing that today. Because there is no verse that says when Acts is written, we're done. Now you just exist. That wasn't the thing. You see, we're too caught up in this world. We are too much like this world. We sound like them. We reason like them. We look at the things around us like them. And we respond like them. The biggest example of that, y'all, is that if it is true that it is God's will to heal all, then we should not fear sickness. And what happened to the church in 2020? It shut its doors. Now, you can have an opinion on that. That's fine. But if it is clear in Scripture that it is God's will to heal and that we are the hands and feet of Jesus to do that, how can the place of which the church meets lock its door out of fear of a sickness? That's a double standard. We are responding like the world. We are not called to get along with them. We are called to be separated from them. Now, John chapter 17, verse 13 says, But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by truth. Now let me pause here for a moment. You see, when we're talking about a separation, there is never a time that the body of Christ, and we'll call it the church, Big C, was ever intended to try to get along with the world. You should not worry about what they think of you as long as you are standing on the truth of God's Word. It should be completely irrelevant. Do we see compromise in the church today? Absolutely. We see a moral compromise, certainly. But I'm going to tell you it's gone beyond that. There is also an expectation that has been compromised. Because are we the hands and feet of Jesus? We should be. And where does that fall? Well, if you notice in the other room over there, there's a bunch of boxes that are packed with food. Thank you guys that brought the cereal and the granola bars. That all the churches in the area got together, they just happened to pack them up here. They're getting delivered tomorrow. When we say the hands and feet of Jesus, that's what we're talking about. 
is that we're giving to those that are less fortunate to us. Here's the problem. So does the world. Do you realize that there are atheistic organizations that get together, that pack up food boxes and hand them out? And they do it for one reason. They'll say, this is to show the church that you don't have to have God in your life to be a good person. How do I know that's what they say? Because I've literally seen them say it. But is that what he was talking about? He said, you're in the world, you're not of it. Just like I was in the world, I was not of it. He says that they are the world just as I am not of the world. You sent me into the world. What is he saying? I also have sent them into the world. Now think about that for a moment. Who is the them that he is referencing? His disciples, ultimately. And we know from a plethora of verses that you go and you make disciples and uh, these signs will follow them that believe and the them that believe are the ones that have been preached to by the disciples. Now here's the, when Jesus came in the world, was he on mission from the Father? Did he have a task to do? Is it fair to say that everything that he said and everything that he did was coming from the Father? Yeah, I did as you told me. I did as you showed me. So when he preached the gospel, when he healed the sick, when he raised the dead, was that what he was sent into the world to do? We know from Acts 10 that he was sent into the world to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. Those are what he was sent into the world. So what did he just say? As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Is it fair to at least come to the conclusion that maybe something like this? Is that the mission that Jesus was on, sent by the Father, and where he said, as you sent me, I send them, means that we are on that same mission? Does that mean that the bar has been lowered for some reason for you and I because we're not Jesus? No. We don't like these words, do we? Because that means that the the world that we're living in where we're just existing and we're just getting by and we go to church and we do things, that means we are wasting time. We are no different than any other faith group of whatever they believe in. There was an expectation. Why was there an expectation? Because we are created in his image. Remember what that means. We are the imager of God. Adam was created into the image of God, meaning he is his imager, his representative on the earth. It's literally what the Hebrew says. We always think that he looks like us, and maybe he does. We don't know for sure. I haven't seen him recently. Anybody else? Okay. I've seen paintings. Don't know if they're accurate. So we are his representative on the earth. That's how he created in the beginning. Israel became his imager on the earth his representative of God's goodness. And then after Christ, we as a new believer, born again, new creation, are his imager on the earth. We're his representative, which means that we should be doing what he said and what he did. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandment. He who says, I know him. Who is him? It's Jesus. And does not keep his commandments is what? a liar and the truth is not in him now let me ask you this when he says go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations was that a commandment or was it a suggestion how we doing not very well because when we hear going into all the world we live in a time where getting to all the world is pretty easy but we don't even get into our neighborhood we don't even get into our workplace so does that mean that We're a liar and the truth is not in us. One could say that. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we are in him. You ready? This is how we know. He who said he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he 
walk. So does that imply that we should be walking just as he was walking? It sure does. So maybe we should look and see what he was doing, how he was walking. That doesn't mean did he skip or have some weird sachet. That's not what it's talking about. We walk in this world as he did. In the Old Testament, Israel knew God. They were in covenant relationship with him when they obeyed his commandments. Who was John writing to? He was writing to believers. There is no scripture written to unbelievers. It is always written to believers. So here is the question, guys. Who is our example? Who should we be mimicking from what we read in scripture? In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, it says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. So what's, this is Paul. It means he said, you can imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. In Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. So who should we be imitating? Who should we be looking like and sounding like and being like? Jesus. This isn't complicated, is it? But when we say that, our mind goes to moral things every time. That you should give money to needy causes. That you should do good in this world. That you shouldn't cuss when you hit a bad tee shot. That's a good thing not to do, by the way. And all of those other things are good too. That you should abstain from those things that the world loves. But is that what he did? Yes, but it's way deeper than that. To live as he, to imitate Jesus means that we teach in the synagogue and we preach that the kingdom of God is at hand and we heal the sick. You see, all of this is implied throughout the entirety of the New Testament. But what we have done is we've taken the standard of God and we've lowered it to something that's easy to step over. Is it easy to give money? Yeah. Can you throw 10 bucks in the box and feel like you've done something? Yeah. And I'm not like degrading that because it's not the amount of money. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm saying we can feel like we've done something. How many church events happen every year where they'll blow up inflatables or bring on a concert and hundreds of thousands of people will show up and you feel like you've done something? You broke the bank to do this thing so that people might hear the truth of the gospel. Happens all the time. How many times do we have an event where we try to do things so we invite people to come to church? Did he say to go into all the world and make disciples? Or did he say, go talk to your neighbors, invite them to church, and hope they get it? I mean, that's the thing, guys. We've lowered the bar so much that when we see something supernatural happen, we're blown away. You know what the best example of this in our world was Neil. Because when Neil had his accident and was at death's door not knowing what was going to happen, Leslie was stressed. I was stressed. Many of us here were stressed. We were praying fervently. And we watched God miraculously heal him. You know who wasn't stressed? The Krispy Kreme aficionado here. Because if you recall what he said, when we're talking about, man, it's amazing what God did. He's just like, what you expect? And that's a fair question because obviously we didn't expect it. Now, we have to admit the reality, right? We weren't prepared for that. We were hoping it would happen but we've hoped for a lot of things that haven't happened. But praise God, Neil's with us. He's back there running the computer and taking care of stuff. He runs wire in this building. He draws up, like, graphics for me to understand what he's doing. And I just hand them back to him. I'm like, I have no idea what any of this means. But the thing is, guys, is our expectations were so low 
that we are shocked that God did literally what he said he would do and literally what we saw Jesus do. And so now when something happens, supernatural, we're like, whoa, that's awesome. Wouldn't you like it to be just normal? Like we just, we expect it all the time. And oh, look, God healed somebody. Yeah, well, he did that yesterday too. Did that this morning. I mean, you guys get what I'm saying? You see, we see the two realities on display. Last week, we talked about John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, where he came in, and he says, Rabbi, we know you're, I know you're from God. He's a Pharisee, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, teachers of the Pharisees, all of this. I know you're from God because nobody can do what you do. So the, the, their expectation was that only somebody sent from God could do those things that Jesus was doing, which was a right expectation. And Jesus says, well, you must be born again. And what does Nicodemus say? Um, How? How do I get back into my mother's womb? Because I assume this, I don't know much like you, but as I have gotten significantly bigger since the moment of birth, my mother has gotten significantly smaller. Or maybe I've just outgrown her. I don't know what the answer to that is. But but what is he thinking? Not supernaturally. He's thinking naturally. Like anybody else who would respond to that question or that statement would if they'd never heard anything about God, Christ, the church, anything. Because born again, you get born once. So what do you mean? And he gets on to him. Are you a teacher in Israel and you don't understand these things? If I tell you heavenly things and you don't understand it, how can I even tell you earthly things and you don't understand it? He's scolding him. Why? Because the expectation was he would know that. You see, we were rescued and removed from the powers of the enemy. When Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? He took the keys to death. He took the authority. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Colossians 1, verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. Look what he says here, verse 13. He has delivered us from what? The power of darkness. And conveyed us where? Into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. Now, you understand what's going on here. This is Paul speaking. This is language that makes complete sense to a first century Jew. Because the world they live in is a different world than the one that we live in. They believe in the power of darkness. They see it all around them. And he says, He has delivered us. These are war terms. It's a deliverance that took place and a redemption. We were redeemed through his blood. Now, that's interesting. Why is that interesting? Well, in Colossae, as well as many places, they would have a forum. And what happened in the forum? That's where they sold the slaves. And you could buy them and redeem them for a price. So this is language that would make sense to them. But let me ask you this question. This is just a simple one. Have we been delivered from the power of darkness, according to the Scriptures? Are we living as if we've been delivered from the power of darkness? No, we are not. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 11. In him, that's the crucial part, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now I know I addressed this last week, but let me talk about this again. Is this the same context of what we just read? Yeah. One chapter later. We put the chapter and verses in. This is not a new thought. It is still militaristic in nature. In Him, we were circumcised not through obedience, but with the putting on the sin of flesh, the circumcision of Christ. See, it was an obedient to the law that they circumcised. But now we're done through. It's no different than the temple that was made with hands. The temple not made with hands. That's you and I. We were buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through faith. Now that's interesting. Because what were the body of sins put on Jesus at the cross? Yes, it's abundantly clear. He was the Passover lamb. He talks about the third cup in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption. This cup I will not drink. This is the new covenant in my blood. That's the sacrifice that's being made. He was in the grave for three days. Did He overcome death? Yes, He did. Why? Because death could not hold him because it had no right to him. You see, the enemy went on an attack of which he shouldn't have if he had known. Had he known the net result of what Jesus did, fulfilling the commandments, he'd never have put him to death. But being buried with him in baptism, we were raised with him through faith in the working of God. We were dead in our trespasses, but he has made us alive. Are we alive? Yes. Did we die? Not physically. We were dead spiritually. That means that new man has been made alive. And what did he do? He wiped out the handwriting requirements that were against us, and he nailed them to the cross. What does that mean? Remember, when they were put into prison for any reason, they were given a judgment. It was on paper. And after they had fulfilled the sentence on that paper, the judge would write, to die," which means it is finished, it's completed. And anywhere they went, they would take that with them. And if anybody tried to bring that accusation against them once again, all they had to do was show them that they had already paid for their crimes. In this case, Jesus paid for our crimes. It is finished. But then what does he do? He disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Who are the principalities and powers? These are the demonic forces, if you will. There's a whole slug of this that we're not going to get into, but just stay with me here. What did he do? Did he disarm them? Does that mean they're armed? No, they're not armed. They're disarmed. That's less arms, right? I know, English is tough. He disarmed them. So why do we walk around like they're armed? Why do we walk around like some weapon that's formed against us might prosper? Why do we walk around as if there's this enemy that's like a roaring lion who's seeking whom he may devour? And why are we running from that? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He has been disarmed. He made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in it. So what does that mean? That means that he, it's, it's militaristic. The Roman army would march through the public square with the kings and the, the leaders that they had just overthrown. They would strip them of everything, including their clothing a lot of times. 
and would humiliate them by walking them through it. So everybody knew there's a new king in town. There's a new man in charge. And then many times they put them to death after that, which he ultimately will. But do you guys see what's going on here? Do we act like these verses are true? We do not. We live our lives in as much fear as everybody else. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the Word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God. We speak in the sight of God in Christ. This is a, through His death we have been saved. To those dying, we reek of death. To those living, we reek of life. He saved us through his death. That is the battle that took place. Has the battle been won? Yes. Now, should we walk in victory? Yes. This isn't a hype sermon. I'm not trying to preach you and get you all riled up. I'm trying to get you to accept the reality of what Christ has said, what Christ has done, and what Scripture has plainly laid out. That we are to walk differently than the rest of this world. What makes Christianity unique to every other religion, it's one thing, and one thing only. What would you say that thing is, Yoli? Nowhere of all things. That would be part of it, yeah. Here's the difference. It's true. That's part of that. That's what separates it. It's not true because we believe it. It's true because it's true. It can be verified without question. That's the separation. So if it's true, what do we hinge our faith on? What's captured in scriptures? The eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the people around. The Old Testament where they captured the things that God did and the things that God said where they wrote all of this stuff down. We know that the world was created out of nothing by faith because we weren't there to see it. So therefore, we're taking the words of what somebody else has to say on that. If we were there, it wouldn't be by faith because we saw it. We're putting our trust in the truth. In Romans chapter 5, look at this. This is where it changes. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. How are we justified? Faith, which means trust. We put our trust in God. So what things do you have to do to do that? There are no things you have to do to do that. Okay, you can't earn this. We're justified by our trust in God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What other people group has ever had peace with God in all history? Adam for like a day. The nation of Israel, perhaps when they were in obedience, which was very short-lived. That was it. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Verse 6, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who were the ungodly? All mankind. We couldn't be godly. There was nothing we could do to be godly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. Do you get that? You, wouldn't, you might lay down your life for somebody who deserves it. 
But you certainly are going to do it for somebody who doesn't. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So this is all salvific in nature. He's talking about how we're justified. And just as if God reconciled mankind to himself through his death, how much more shall we be saved by his life? Is Jesus alive? Yes, that's another unique factor. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Now that's interesting. He said death reigned when? Adam to Moses. Isn't that interesting? Why not pass that? What happened at the time of Moses? The sacrificial system. An atonement was now able to be made. Something unique there. And they ultimately go into the promised land. But the free gift, verse 15, is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let me ask you this. We know in the book of Romans it's basically a, a, a long diatribe to the church of how to behave and how to act. But what is the moral of the story? Ultimately, we are saved to life through Jesus' death burial and resurrection the sacrifice that he made he shows a clear distinction between those who are now life and those who are now death and it's not like what adam had did where death affected all men here life can affect those who will receive the free gift so therefore with that free gift do we fear judgment no do we fear condemnation no do we fear death yes we do yes we do should we no. You see, there's a distinction here. Because the promise of eternal life. You see, you can't understand something, but when you die physically, your spirit is alive. But what's ultimately going to happen? The resurrection of believers and this glorified body that we are going to have that is guaranteed to have a six-pack of abs. That's in the Message Bible. Look it up. You see, here's the thing, guys. We have to understand what Jesus has done and the promises he's made. So if those things are true, should we fear any of that? No, but do we? Yes, because we don't really expect it to happen. 
It's like when we're praying for somebody. We're kind of closing our eyes with one eye open. I wonder if it's working. It's not how we should go. Grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Why can that happen? Because he defeated death. He took the keys to death. That means he now has ownership over it. We don't fear death. We have hope. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. Now, were you dead? Not physically. So we know what he's talking about. You, he, being Jesus, made alive, who were dead, trespasses, and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, here's the question. Who did he make alive? Believers. Who were once dead, who once walked according to what? Not the supernatural. The course of this world. And what do they do? According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works, so he's currently working, in the sons of disobedience. Those who are not in him. Among whom also we once conducted ourselves. So the prince of the power of the air. We all once conducted ourselves according to him. The lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath, just as the other. Now, when I read that, what, where does your mind immediately go? You think the lust of the flesh and the desires of the flesh is this moral thing. Don't be so loose with your body. Right? That's where we go. But it's not just that. And of the mind. In other words, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the mind is I'm not focused on what God wants. I'm only looking to please myself. How do we do that? We want what we want. Therefore, we'll do everything. I hear people say this all the time. I would love to give to more ministry. I just can't afford to. Do you know how many times I've sat through and made a budget with somebody for years? And do you realize how many times we found money that they didn't know because it's just been squandered? And they don't even realize it. Why? Because they're feeling, fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Now, don't misunderstand me. Buy your boat. Whatever. Get the stuff you want. There's nothing wrong with that inherently. But it shouldn't own you. So here is the fulfilling of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. But God, verse 4, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together by, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what did he do? We were dead. He made us alive. We're seated at the right hand of the Father, just with him. He is the head. We are the body. Have we been given everything that we need to live and reign in this earth as the imager of God? The answer is yes. Are we walking in that reality? The answer is no. Look at Colossians 2 again, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, 
in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now let me ask you this. If you were a member of the Roman army and you just marched into some, pick any nation, whatever, and you completely defeated them, what member of that society would you have feared? The answer would be none. They have been defeated. They have been disarmed. They have nothing left of which they can come against us. So why would I fear them? Would you say that it would be an irrational fear that somebody who is disarmed that has been defeated and just stripped of everything and marched through, humiliated. Is there anything left to fear of them? No, that's the enemy, folks. And that's what we're not recognizing. You see, that's the distinction. We have to see things as Jesus sees them, as he saw them when he was here. He is our example of how to walk in this earth. We have severely lowered the bar. Look at Romans chapter 6. I know we read Romans 5, but look at chapter 6 here for just a moment. Verse 1. So, again, same context as before. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How should we who died to sin live any longer in it? Did we die to sin? So how should we live in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Were we buried with him, baptized in death? Were we raised with him? That's what it says. It's not, this isn't just like, cute preaching things and you know this is what they say the only difference between you and Jesus is Jesus has a glorified body we're still in this body made with flesh and we are not the son of God we are not little gods there's a lot of stuff out there we are his immature meaning his representative and that authority has been given look at verse 5 For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Why does he say that? It's going to blow your mind, okay? Do you know how one becomes not a slave under this time? One way. You died. Did you take it out? I know it sounds stupid. That's literally it. But what happens if you died, and then three days later, you rose again? There's no rule for that. They wouldn't know what to do with it. You see, what's happening here is we're no longer slaves of sin because with Jesus, we died. It no longer reigns over us. It's been disarmed been marched in front of so what on this earth has power over you the answer is nothing what on this earth has authority over you we're talking spiritually 
The answer is nothing. Look at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You notice he makes a distinction here. Does that imply that you can let sin reign? Yeah. Who's supposed to stop that? So should you pray to God to make you stop sinning? No. He's already defeated it. That you should obey its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, as your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So let me ask you this. What has dominion over you as a born-again, spirit-filled believer? The answer is nothing that you don't allow. And this, think about this. This is a tough one. From Scripture. What has Christ not freed us from and ultimately given us authority over? I'll wait. There's nothing. Why did we lower the bar? We've lowered the bar so low that if there's anything supernatural that happens, we're just completely blown away. We shouldn't be like that. We should have a confident expectation that God will move as He says He will move. That God will be true to His Word every single time without question. The reason we don't believe it is because we don't expect it. We've lowered the bar. Does God stand true to His Word? Yes, He does. You see, church, this is where we're going. Living in this reality because we ain't doing it right. It's not just us. It's the church, the big C. We've got a problem. So what happens when people get a revelation of who they are in Christ? The authority that they've given. You know what happens? It's the book of Acts. When Peter got a revelation of what Jesus did, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he was no longer this timid man. He stood up and preached boldly. Philip goes out, does what he, I mean all of them. Paul has a revelation of Jesus Christ, a unique one. Changes his life. Every one of them died for what they knew to be true. That's the difference, church. So we've got to be a people that move according to that. So we've got to rise up. And we're going to pray. We're going to pray for We're going to pray for Nancy right now. Nancy's in having some health issues. We're going to pray for her. And then if it's all right, I want to pray for Kayla. And I'll have a few people come up and help me. She's been having some health issues as well. It's not named Derek. I know you were probably thinking that. You know, thorn in the flesh or that wart or whatever you want to say. But, but we're going to pray and then we're going to dismiss. So let's first pray for Nancy. Father, we just thank you. And Lord, we just stand on the authority of your word. And in the name of Jesus, we just rebuke all acts of the enemy. That you make her whole. That all sickness is gone. Anything that is wrong, Lord, in Jesus' name, we just rebuke right now. And we stand on the promise of your world. It's by your stripes that we are healed. We stand on that word, Lord, knowing that you will fulfill your promises. You don't move mysteriously, but you move according to your promises, Lord. And so we stand on that now in Jesus' name. And we thank you that she is made whole. She is feeling better and that everything is coming into rightness right now in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. And Kayla, do you mind if we pray for you? Does anybody want to come up here and pray? Kayla, you don't have to stand up. I'll come over to you. But anybody else want to come up here? We're going to lay hands on her.
you've been having some high blood pressure. And again, I know you're thinking it's probably because of Derek. Um, we're going to let him off the hook this time. So anyway, and we're going to pray for them. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name that your spirit is moving right now. Pour yourself out upon this couple as they stand strongly and grow in their knowledge of who you are and what you do, Lord. And we just stand on the promise of your word that all things come right, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we just rebuke the enemy, that all sickness has to go, that everything is made right because this is a child of the king and that she is full of the spirit of God. And I just thank you, Lord, that you are pouring yourself out upon her right now in Jesus' name and that she is made whole that all sickness has to go, blood pressure has to get in line, anything else that is wrong, Lord, in Jesus' name, we just stand on your promises right now, and we give you the glory for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, have a great week. Enjoy Father's Day, and we will see you next Sunday.